Last week, we read about Rebecca's barrenness. She was unable to have children, but her husband, Isaac, prayed for her, and he prayed for her for around 20 years, and then she eventually became pregnant. But things felt unsettled within her. And so we read that she went to inquire of the Lord. She went to ask the Lord, if everything that's going on is good, why, why do things feel un- unsettled within me? And this week we're gonna pick things up with the answer that she received from the Lord. So Rebecca, who is a, a type, a picture of the church, has been prayed for by her husband, just as we have been prayed for by Jesus. And as a result of Isaac's prayers, Rebecca was no longer barren, just as we are no longer spiritually barren, but we are born again because Jesus has prayed for us. He has ministered to us. And yet, there's still something awry within Rebecca. Just as even though we can be saved, but there can still be after that moment a certain turmoil within us. Maybe you remember when you first got saved, you, you give your life to Jesus and you're born again and you have this new life, but, but things still feel sort of unsettled within you. It's, you're, you're shocked when you didn't wake up the next day with wings on or anything. Things still feel like a struggle within you. Well, what's going on? So let's find out why Rebecca's feeling this way. In verse 23, it says, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. There's your problem right there. So go ahead and underline that and we'll unpack this. Two nations are in your womb is what the Lord says. The divine ultrasound technician tells her this and says two peoples shall be separated from your body. So the two that you're gonna give birth to, these two boys, these twins that are within you are gonna give birth to two entire people groups. And we're going to discover that these will be the boys named Jacob and Esau. And as we study through their lives, as we work through the text, we're going to see more of this typology that we've been seeing in the book of Genesis. If you haven't been with us while we've done that, basically there's people in the Bible, especially here in the book of Genesis, and God records some of their lives in the Bible and parts of their life reveal greater truths about things coming in the future or how things work in the kingdom of God. They're real people, they really lived lives, but the parts of their lives that are recorded in the Bible also reveal greater lessons and greater truth to help us understand these things. And so we're gonna see this continue into this next generation. Just as Isaac was a picture or a type of the spirit, and Ishmael was a type or a picture of the flesh, Jacob will now be a picture of the spirit, while Esau will be a picture of the flesh. So make a note of this and we'll talk about it. Jacob is a type of the spirit, while Esau is a type of the flesh, a type of the flesh. And you might recall that our flesh refers to our physical self. And so our flesh is sinful because from the moment we're born, the thing that our flesh wants to do is serve itself. Our flesh loves itself to death, literally. Flesh is like, I love me some me. Our flesh is the part of us that, you know, when there's a group photo, judges the quality of the whole photo by how we look. Doesn't matter if everybody else is having the worst photo of their life taken. If I look good, I'm good. Why? Because I'm looking at that picture in the flesh. It's just the way it is. The flesh cares about me, what I want, and getting it as quickly as humanly possible. The spirit refers to just that. The spirit within us. The part of us that's going to live forever. 
And while our spirit is also born in sin, is also born sinful, is also born desiring things that aren't always good, our spirit can actually be made new through putting our faith in God. When we do that, the Bible says we're given a new spirit. Our spirit is made new. We are born again. How are we saved? How do we enter into a relationship with God? Not by a work of the flesh. Not by trying to get our physical self to never do anything wrong, never do anything sinful, never think anything evil, because that's absolutely impossible. We're saved by a work of the Spirit. Through faith in God, He does a work in us and gives us a new spirit. But once we have that new spirit, this is where the problem happens. We've got this new spirit that wants to live for God, but it's in a physical body that wants to live for itself. And so you have the spirit and you have the flesh and this inherent conflict between the two. There's a spirit in me that's new, that belongs to God, that wants to live for God, that desires good things, but it's inside a physical body that wants the things that are gonna bring me satisfaction right now regardless of the consequences or the impact on anybody else. My flesh is all about myself while my spirit wants to please God once I've been born again and this is the problem. This is the problem. Galatians 5.17 sums up the issue like this. It says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They're opposed to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So this turmoil that you feel, why, why can't I make myself actually do the things that I know I should do? That the part of me that loves God wants to do, why? because I'm still in this physical body made up of the flesh. And as Rebecca holds both Esau and Jacob within her womb, she serves as the perfect illustration of every believer who has the flesh and the spirit battling within. Which reminds me of the famous old story about a missionary in Africa who had a local man come up to him and say, you know, I feel like there are two dogs within me and they're, they're fighting all the time and one of them is, is dark and, and evil and the other one is good and is light and, and, and I need to know which one is going to win, which one's going to win and the missionary wisely responded, whichever one you feed, whichever one you feed and man is that ever true, the longer you live the more you will find that that is such a true statement, as simple as it is, it is so profound because it is so true. If I feed my spirit with the things that nourish it, time with the Lord, prayer, being in the word of God, worship, fellowship with the church family, I inevitably find myself drifting toward living in the spirit. But if I feed my flesh with the things that strengthen it, gossip, porn, bitterness, violent media, I, I inevitably find myself sinking deeper and deeper into sin and bondage as my flesh becomes stronger and stronger and overpowers the spirit in my life more and more easily. So write this down. The daily battle between flesh and spirit is largely determined by which one we choose to feed. The daily battle between flesh and spirit is largely determined by which one we choose to feed. Here's something you need to know as well. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're not completely being led by your flesh in the way you live. 
Here's what you need to know too. If you feed both, you will find yourself feeling completely sick because they're both getting stronger and so the fight within you just intensifies and becomes all the more vicious. If you live like a believer on Sunday but a pagan on Friday, you're gonna end up miserable. You're just gonna be miserable. It's an absolute guarantee because you'll have too much of God to enjoy the pleasures of the world and too much of the world to enjoy God. What did Jesus say in his letter to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3? You see, they were feeding both the flesh and the spirit. And Jesus said to them, because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Because nobody likes lukewarm water. He said, I want you to be one or the other. Be hot or be cold. Choose one. Because if you go all in on the flesh... At least if you go all in on the flesh, I'm just gonna be led by my flesh, gonna live for my flesh, gonna do what I want. If you go all in sooner or later, you're gonna end up at the same place that the prodigal son did. You're gonna discover that it's empty. You're gonna find yourself unable to sleep because you can't rest because there's no peace within you. And you'll realize that the peace you had was coming from the Lord. You'll find your relationships crumbling. You'll find death creeping into every area of your life. It's a guarantee. If you go all in on the flesh, it'll be exposed as empty sooner or later. Guaranteed. But if you go all in on living for Jesus, you're going to be effective. You're going to be blessed and you're going to enjoy that. But if you hang out in the middle, if you hang out in the middle, you're just going to be miserable and you're going to be completely ineffective from a kingdom eternal perspective. Write this down. Feeding both the flesh and the spirit is guaranteed to result in misery and discontent. Feeding both the flesh and the spirit is guaranteed to result in misery and discontent. You can usually spot it when you're in church. They're the person who's in church, but they look like they don't want to be in church, and you can't figure out why they're in church, right? It's like time to worship, and they're the one that's like, and you're like, why are you here? Like, you're an adult. Like, what are you doing here? They're just like, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm here. You know, but there's, there's this conviction from God giving them a miserable time because they're trying to do both, trying to be in the world but not of the world at the same time, and it just doesn't work. The spirit and the flesh feed the one, nourish the one that you want to rule your life. And when a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and says, you know, I'm saved, I know the Lord is with me, but there's just this, this discontent. There's this like turmoil within me. I just feel disconnected from God. Have the courage, have the love, have the love for that brother or sister to actually ask them, hey, can I ask what, what you're feeding in your life right now? Are you, are you feeding the wrong thing or are you maybe feeding both? Because it's amazing how often we get to that place as believers and yet when we're asked that question we reply, well you know I haven't, I haven't really been in the word a lot lately and haven't had much time to, to pray or worship and I, I've been so tired I've just been watching a lot of TV and been kind of missing church a bit but I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is. Yes it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. If we or a brother or sister feel malnourished spiritually and we're not nourishing ourselves spiritually, it's not rocket science. It would be like someone coming in and saying, you know, I just, I just, 
hey, Pastor Jeff, I have this like rumbling in my stomach and I, and I feel faint and I just have no energy. And I don't know what's going on. Oh, what, what did you have to eat? I haven't really been doing that recently. What, what do you mean? Well, the eating. I haven't been doing it recently. How long has it been? Just 23 days, something like that. Do you think that, that, that maybe that could be connected to the problem? No, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. We'd all be like, you idiot, you idiot. But when it comes to spiritual things, right? We're like, haven't been in the word, haven't been connected to my brothers and sisters, my church family, haven't been in prayer, haven't been worshiping, been feeding myself with everything that's the opposite of that. I, I, I still can't figure it out. I just can't connect the dots here. I'm starving myself spiritually. I feel like I'm spiritually starving. Okay. There we go. It's not rocket science. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not complicated. And we need to make sure that when we're in that place that we don't over-spiritualize or over-complicate it or decide that we need tons and tons of counseling or something like that when, when we haven't even tried the, mo- the most obvious thing yet. If it was a physical situation, we'd say we don't need to do stomach surgery. We first need to see what happens when you start feeding yourself a little bit. Why don't we try that? That's kind of the obvious first thing to do. And so the same is true spiritually when there's this discontent. Start with the obvious. Start starving the flesh and feeding the spirit and see what happens. You'll be amazed. You'll be amazed. In Romans 5, on your outlines, the Apostle Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So let's be real blunt here. Real talk. You wanna know which way you're drifting toward the spirit or the flesh? The apostle Paul would say, hey, what's your mind on all the time? What is your mind on all the time? Is your mind constantly drifting to the things of the flesh or is your mind constantly drifting over to the things of God? Which one happens more easily? That's sort of an indicator of which way you're drifting right now and which part of you is being fed more. Esau, a type of the flesh, will be the the older brother because what comes first in our experience, the flesh or the spirit? Well, the flesh. We're all born sinners before the Lord saves us. The Lord continues in verse 23 and he tells Rebekah, one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Underline, the older shall serve the younger. You see, that last line would have been unusual because it would have been an exception to the normal rule. In this culture, this time in history, the older, the firstborn, would rule the younger. They would get a double portion of the inheritance and they would serve as the priest of the family, the patriarch of the family, ministering to the family as sort of the family pastor as well. Being the firstborn was more than a birth order issue. It was an esteemed title within the family, just as Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation in Colossians 1. But in this case, the Lord says, it's gonna be the other way around with these two twins inside of you. The older is going to serve the younger. Verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The name Esau means hairy and the name Jacob means heel grabber or heel catcher because at this time apparently they put absolutely no effort into naming their children. Let's just see what happens when the kid comes out. We'll just go with the first thing that comes to mind. Red, heel grabber, done. That's what happened. So we read that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. So Esau was a testosterone-driven outdoorsman. He liked hunting and killing things. He had the, the pickup with the gun rack in the back and the, the buffalo skull strapped down on the hood right there. But there, there's more going on here as the, as the typology gets developed. So, so where do we find Esau who's a picture of the flesh? We find him out in the world. He finds his satisfaction and his meaning out in the world. In fact, we're told that Esau was a a skillful hunter, which is interesting because the last person mentioned in the book of Genesis as a skillful hunter was called a mighty hunter to be exact, and it it was Nimrod, Nimrod that antichrist type found back in Genesis 10. And in a couple of chapters, we're gonna find that Esau's bloodline will actually extend in the future all the way to the antichrist who is to come. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Whereas we're told that Jacob could be found dwelling in tents. He's a homebody guy, but there's more than that going on too. This takes our mind to the New Testament book of Hebrews. And you might remember what it said about Abraham in the book of Hebrews, it says he spent his life dwelling in tents because he longed for heaven. He longed for heaven and so he had no desire for really an earthly home. He didn't see the point in building one so he just lived in tents for his whole life. And in that same part of Hebrews, we're told that Jacob had that same heart and that same desire for the things of God, basically. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the Bible specifically tells us that Rebekah favored Jacob while Isaac preferred his man's man of a son, Esau. And you know, you just find that that when there's multiple sons, the father usually loves the one that brings him the most meat. That's just how it works, that's just how it works. You could buy a man's love with bacon any day of the week, right? But, uh, but this situation also led to problems. It also led to problems that are gonna happen down the road. And, and a lack of unity between parents, playing favorites with the kids, it always leads to problems down the road. Always leads to problems down the road. Tuck that away and we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. Verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field. He had been out hunting and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, oh, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. So from this moment on everyone calls Esau Edom which just means red. It's another way to say the word red. And we're gonna find that that's gonna kinda suck because they're basically gonna change his name to commemorate the biggest mistake he'll ever make in his life. You know, so it'd be like changing your name to like runs over squirrel or something like that. But uh, verse 31. You're like, if that was the biggest mistake I ever made in my life, I'd take that. So, verse 31, but Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright as of this day. So the birthright, you'll recall, was that set of responsibilities and privileges that came with being the firstborn in a family that we talked about earlier. And what you need to notice from this is that Jacob wanted that birthright. 
He wanted it. He wanted the double inheritance. He wanted that position in the family. He wanted to be the priest in the family. He wanted to be the minister in the family. He wanted to lead the family. He wanted that. Verse 32, and Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus, and then underline this phrase here, Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. So in contrast to Jacob who desired the birthright, we're told that Esau despised his birthright. How much? Well, he valued it less than the feeling of an empty stomach. That's the value that he placed on it. And so he sold it to his brother for a bowl of stew. Esau saw no value in getting a double portion of the inheritance. He saw no value in getting to lead his family as priest. He saw no value in in ministering to the Lord and his family. Hebrews calls him a profane person. The word profane just means ungodly. In other words, Esau, this picture of the flesh, has no desire for spiritual things. But what do we see here? His desires are driven by what's gonna bring him immediate satisfaction. That's how he's a picture of the flesh. He says, I don't care about future things. I don't care about eternal things. I just, I just want the thing that's gonna make me feel good right now. Jacob, for all the issues that he's gonna have in the coming weeks, and he's got some real issues, has one thing going for him. Same thing David had going for him. He hungered and thirsted for the things of God. He wanted more of God and of the kingdom. So write this down. The spirit lives for eternal things while the flesh sees no value in them and lives for immediate satisfaction. The spirit lives for eternal things while the flesh sees no value in them and lives for immediate satisfaction. And when we look at the typology here and what would unfold Several centuries later, a very interesting picture emerges here that I need to make you aware of as well. You know, the Bible tells us God chose the Jewish people as his own special people. The Messiah, Jesus, came as a Jew. Jesus sent the disciples to the Jews first, and he said that he himself had been sent to specifically focus on ministering to the Jews. And in John 4.22, Jesus summed it up plainly. He said, salvation is from the Jews. They were entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures which were packed full of promises and prophecies from God that he would make a way for them to be saved. And yet when Jesus came to the earth as their Messiah, they rejected him. As a people, they called for him to be crucified rather than crowned. The Jews would despise their birthright as the chosen people of God. Now on the other hand, like Jacob, the Gentiles were eager, when I say Gentiles, I mean non-Jews, they were eager to grab a hold of this birthright because they could see that it was priceless. In Acts 28, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Jewish leaders in Rome and he said, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And the tragic irony is that the Jews were so confident that their birthright would save them. They believed that their Jewish flesh, the fact that they were ethnically Jewish, would guarantee them salvation. They believed that God had chosen the Jewish people because they were superior to all other peoples of the earth. But what did the Apostle Paul 
the most Jewish of Jews say about his flesh in Romans 7? He said, for I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells. So there's an element of prophecy regarding the future of the Jews and the Gentiles as it relates to the gospel. No work of the flesh, not your good works, not your best efforts, not your ethnicity, not your spiritual heritage can save you. Only a work of God done by the Spirit of God in your spirit through faith can save you. And to try and help Israel understand this, at least five times in the Old Testament, God intentionally bypassed the firstborn. He bypassed the oldest son because he wanted Israel to understand salvation is not gonna be something that happens by the flesh, but by the spirit. You're not just born into this. You don't just get this because of who you are. And God will bypass the expected order of things if he doesn't find faith to work with. Examples of the oldest being bypassed for the youngest include Seth over Cain, Shem instead of Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah and Joseph before Reuben, Moses ahead of Aaron, and and David, the youngest, ahead of all of his brothers. And I think there's also a picture of how the spirit and the flesh respond to the gospel. While our flesh never desires the things of God. Our spirit, even though we're born sinful, has the capacity to desire the truth even when it doesn't have it yet. The Bible tells us that even though we're born sinful, we're still born with a conscience that knows the difference between right and wrong to a certain degree, that recognizes some things as true and some things as lies. And that if we'll listen to that conscience, It will lead us to the truth. It will lead us to Jesus. Or we'll either instead choose to suppress our conscience and willingly embrace lies instead of the truth in order to please the flesh and do what we want to do. The flesh will never respond to the gospel, never respond to God's invitation of a relationship, but our our spirit can, our spirit can. So salvation cannot come. It cannot come to the one who has decided, determined that they will live by the flesh. Salvation comes to the one who desires to live by the Spirit. Not that they are yet, but that they desire to. They desire the truth. We see in Esau how the flesh responds to the gospel. It places no value on it. It sees nothing worthwhile about belonging to the family of God. But on the flip side, we see in Jacob how the Spirit responds to the gospel. It wants it. It deeply desires to have the privilege of being part of the family of God. Let's keep going into chapter 26, verse one. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. This is not the same Abimelech that Abraham encountered in Gerar back in the day, although it is the same region. And as we mentioned at that time, Abimelech wasn't really the guy's name. It was more a title of the man who was the leader of the Philistines in this region. And I suspect in all likelihood that this is one of the sons of the Abimelech who was there when Abraham was there, because we'll find he seems to be familiar with the story of some things that happened when Abraham was there. So where is Gerar geographically? Well, it's about as close as you can get to Egypt without stepping foot into Egypt. You know like when you tell your kid like stay out of the room and they're like right, right on the border of the room. Gerar is like that with Egypt. It's right, right on the edge. 
And one of the recurring themes in Genesis as well is that God is working to grow our faith. He's always working to grow our faith. If you're a believer, the work that God wants to do in your life more than anything else is make you more like Jesus. And the foundation of that work is you trusting our heavenly father the way that Jesus trusted his heavenly father. Because if you don't trust your heavenly father, you won't ever respond in obedience to him because you won't believe him. So this work of faith is central to us becoming like Jesus. It's the work that God wants to do in your life more than any other kind of work. And if the Lord is gonna grow our faith, he's gonna have to put us in situations where our faith has the opportunity to grow. He's gonna have to put us in situations where, where there's nothing that we can do to fix it. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves and, and the only option we have is to lean into him and lean upon him and trust him. And over the course of our lives, God works to call us up over and over again to greater levels of faith and that's what God is doing in Isaac's life right now through this famine. A famine's a time of lack. It's, it's a time when there's more going out than there is coming in. And we've all been there, haven't we? Some of you might be there right now. It could be financial. Maybe money's really tight. You don't know what you're gonna do. Maybe it's relational. Maybe you're single and you're like, I'm in a man famine. That's what's going on right now. I'm in a woman famine right now. I need some deliverance. Maybe you're just in a rough place in your marriage and you're trying everything, but nothing works. You feel like there's so much going out, putting so much out, but nothing's coming in. And these famines in our lives are opportunities to trust God because he's waiting for us to ask him the question, how do you want me to respond to this situation, Lord? That's the question that faith asks. Because what the flesh does in that situation is usually just go, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. I gotta do something, gotta do something, gotta do something. And then we usually do something really stupid. What faith does is it asks the question, how do you want me to respond, Lord? What do you want me to do here? Unfortunately, Isaac doesn't do that. There's no record of him ever seeking the Lord about this. Instead, he does exactly what we do. And he says, crap, crap, I, I gotta do something. I gotta, gotta do something. And, and what does he do? Well, he heads straight down into Philistine territory. Gerar, right on the border with Egypt. So we're gonna find this is not a good place to be. So write this down and then we'll keep going. When we feel as though we've gotta do something, we need to do the one thing that's most important. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord. When we feel as though we've gotta do something, I gotta do something, we need to do the one thing that's most important. Seek the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, Lord what do you want me to do here? Even though he's right there and it, it's as simple as literally praying that, our flesh wants to do anything other than that, right? I don't wanna seek the Lord, I wanna pick up the phone and call a friend, maybe they can help me. Go out somewhere. Do something that's just going to get my mind off of this. Get away from this geographically. Not seek the Lord though. No, not seek the Lord. Why would I do that? That's what the flesh says. Verse 2. Then the Lord appeared to him, to Isaac, and said, now underline this, do not go down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt, Isaac. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Now if you've been around the Bible for a while, then you'll know that Egypt is pretty much always in the Bible a type, a picture of the world. 
the world. And so what the Lord is telling Isaac is, I know you're scared, Isaac. I know it seems like things aren't working out in the promised land. I know it seems like you're going to be in real trouble if you stay where I've told you to stay. But in this time when you're looking for comfort, when you're looking for a solution, Isaac, do not run to the world. Don't go looking there for what you're looking for. Look to me, Isaac. And the Lord goes on to say, dwell in this land. And the actual word that's used there is sojourn. Some of your Bibles will say that. The point is that God was telling Isaac to temporarily dwell in Gerar, to view himself as just passing through. Don't make a new home here, Isaac. And he goes on and he says, and I'll be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He's saying, Isaac, I don't just have a plan to keep you alive. I've got a plan to prosper you. And your entire family and your family line. So trust me, Isaac, I got this. And then the Lord repeats. He, he reconfirms, he reaffirms the promises that he had previously made to Isaac's father, Abraham. And it's like the Lord is saying, Isaac, if you trust me, I'll be with you the way I was with him. I'll be with you the way I was with him. And I always want to point out that, that when the Lord says this in the original language, the word seed is actually singular. It's singular. When the Lord tells Isaac that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, it's speaking prophetically of Jesus, specifically. Verse six we read, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. The word that's used there is actually the word dwelt and it implies that much more permanent state. So Isaac does not follow the Lord's instructions. He doesn't go all the way down to Egypt, but he relocates to Gerar. That's what I love about the Bible. This is so much like us. Oh, you know, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna seek the Lord. I'm gonna do something because I panic. Then the Lord is graciously gonna come and speak to me and say, I got you, don't, don't panic. Just trust me, don't make a home here. Oh, okay, Lord, thank you, Lord, you're so good. And then we go and do the exact thing he just told us not to do. God is so patient, he's so, he's so gracious because Isaac is considered one of the patriarchs, one of the great fathers of the faith but he literally does not do what God has just told him to do right here. Does the exact opposite in the very next verse. And God still cares for him. He's still patient with him because he's interested in growing Isaac. He's interested in growing him. And he understands, okay, we're growing a little slow right now, Isaac, but that's okay, I'm gonna hang with you. So Isaac chooses to relocate, to dwell in this place of compromise, this place of compromise. Get the picture here. He's, he's basically got one foot in the promised land and one foot in Egypt. He's in this place of compromise in Gerar. He didn't go all the way down into Egypt, into the world, but he didn't stay all the way in the promised land. He's in that awful place of compromise. So write this down. Fear tempts us to believe the lie that a solution can be found in the place of compromise. Fear tempts us to believe the lie that a solution can be found in the place of compromise. Maybe what I'm looking for, maybe what I really need is just in this place of 
compromise. I'll just compromise a few areas of my faith to get some, some relief for this craving that my flesh has. And then it's a win-win-win. Everyone wins. And one compromise, though, generally leads to another and another and another. And in verse 7, it says, And the men of the place, the men of Gerar, asked about his wife. And he said, Oh, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she's, she's beautiful to behold. Now isn't it interesting that, that there seems to be this pattern emerging of the patriarchs all having extremely beautiful wives? So apparently there's something about a holy life and a hot wife that go together. Okay, this is good theology right here. If you're a single man here or listening to this or watching this online, that's a word from the Lord for you. Holy life, hot wife. Write it down, God's speaking to you, okay? So, so now we see, we see Isaac entering into lying and deception. Because when you dwell in the place of compromise, when you make a home in the place of compromise, all that happens is you end up having to compromise your faith again and again and again because it's what the place demands of you. And where do you think Isaac learned to do this? From his dad, from Abraham, during one of the weaker seasons of Abraham's faith. But here's the interesting thing and the disturbing thing. Based on what the Bible tells us, Abraham was doing the same thing, denying that Sarah was actually his wife because he was scared and didn't believe God would take care of them. Abraham started and finished doing that before Isaac was even born. And yet, this same sin, this same doubt, this same lack of faith shows up in Isaac's life a generation later. And we don't know if the stories were passed on to Isaac by other people or if this was just some sort of spiritual DNA getting transferred down through generations. But what we do know is that the problem with spending time in the place of compromise is also this, your kids are gonna follow. Your kids are gonna follow. And you know, we might think, oh, that's not gonna affect me. I mean, like really? I'm, I'm not gonna watch that show because, oh, I might get tainted. I'm, I'm a grown man, come on. I can handle that. That's not going to have any impact on me spiritually. Or I can go there. I can do that. I can, I can hang out with them. I can balance the spirit and the flesh. No problem. Well, firstly, I'd just say always remember, you're not wiser than Solomon. You're not stronger than Samson. You're not more passionate about the Lord than David was. And every single one of those men fell into serious catastrophic sin that ruined their life because they spent some time in the place of compromise. Don't fool yourself. And then I'd also ask this question. Can your kids handle it? Can your kids handle it? Because they're gonna follow in your footsteps, even into adulthood. This shows up in Isaac's life. He's in middle age. He's a middle-aged man and this shows up. We want to be very careful about what we pass on to our kids. I want to pass on blessing to my kids. I want to pass on faith to my kids. I want to pass on a, a trust in the Lord to my kids. I don't want to pass on fear and doubt and compromise to my kids. We want to be very, very careful about that. Dads especially, don't take, don't take compromising your faith lightly. Don't take it lightly. 
Isaac never even saw his father do this and yet it showed up in his life. Write this down. The more time we spend in the place of compromise, the easier it will be for our children to find their way there too. It's a hard truth. The more time we spend in the place of compromise, the easier it will be for our children to find their way there too. Verse eight, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time. There we see again, he's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be sojourning, but he's been there a long time. That Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. I, uh, does anybody here have the King James Version? Anybody here? No? Okay. The King James Version this actually says, this is the best translation of this verse out there. I've done the work for you. King James Version says that Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. So apparently that's what the kids called it uh, back in the day, sporting with his wife. And we're not talking about throwing the Frisbee if you're picking up what I'm putting down here. Okay, so Abimelech, Abimelech is looking out the window and he says to other people in his palace, guys, look at these disgusting Hebrew rednecks. That's his sister. And then it hits him, wait a minute, that's not his sister? Verse nine, then Abimelech called Isaac and said, well, quite obviously she's your wife, so how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac says to him, well, because I said, lest I die on account of her. What's the problem with this? Well, the problem is that according to the Bible, Isaac was supposed to be willing to die for Rebecca, right? Not just as an act of finality, but, but on a daily basis. In Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul writes, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. What did Jesus do for the church? He died for the church. He died for the church. Paul said Jesus is our role model as husbands, the same Jesus who literally laid down his life for his bride, the church, you and I, by dying on the cross. He said that's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. And it's not a process that happens overnight. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's very good, I was waiting for some woman to laugh and then I'd have to be like, that's not appropriate, come on. Very controlled of you ladies right there. It's not a process that happens overnight. It's a work of the spirit over a lifetime. But as husbands, our goal is to get a little bit better at dying to ourselves every day. It doesn't come naturally. Probably figured that out too. But a little bit every day, that's the goal. How did Isaac get himself in this messy situation? Well, he made the same mistake that we so often do when things got difficult. When things got difficult, he didn't trust the promises of God. Panicked, got scared, and ran to the place of compromise. Ran to the place of compromise. Verse 10, and Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you could have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. I think this is the point where Abimelech remembers a story that his father told him about the time a powerful Hebrew man named Abraham had come to stay in Gerar. You might recall the story. He also had a beautiful wife. She was named Sarah. And he had also told them that she was actually his sister. So the Abimelech at that time, this Abimelech's father had taken Sarah into his harem, but before he could do anything, God did something and struck all the men of the region with impotence and all the women of the region with barrenness. 
until the Lord came to Abimelech and said, hey, this is what's going on. That woman belongs to that guy, Abraham. Do not touch her. And Abimelech was like, okay, whatever you want, whatever you want. So no doubt, this Abimelech's father had ended that story by saying, so listen, son, if a powerful Hebrew guy ever shows up with a beautiful wife and claims that it's his sister, do not believe him. Just trust me on this one. And so this Abimelech is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you know what could have happened to me? So Psalm 103.2, one of my favorite verses says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love that phrase, forget not all his benefits. When do we run to the place of compromise? When we fail to do that. We fail to remember all of the benefits of belonging to God. That's why I love, I love the phrase. I say it with my friends all the time, just it's so good to be a Christian, isn't it? It's so good to be loved by the Lord. It's just so good because I never wanna forget all the benefits of being loved by the Lord. The Bible says that like Abraham and Isaac, we've been made heirs, heirs of the kingdom of God. That's the inheritance that's waiting for you and I. The Bible says Jesus has made us kings and priests who will reign with him. If you're in a famine, if you're in the place of of lack or hunger in any way, don't compromise, don't compromise. And there might be tons of people, there might be people who call themselves believers who are gonna tell you, that's okay, I understand, it's really hard right now. And I just need to tell you that's not what the word says because that compromise is still going to bring destruction into your life. It's gonna wreck and devastate your life. And so it's not the loving thing for anyone to say to you if you're in that place, hey, I understand it's tough right now. Just do what you need to do. The most loving thing to say is, hey, do not compromise. Do not dwell in the place of compromise. Get back to where the Lord has called you to be. Begin feeding your spirit. Begin starving your flesh. Just because you're in a famine season doesn't mean the Lord has left you. It means he's growing your faith. And I know it's not easy. But God's out to do something great in you. He's out to do something great in you. And we have an opportunity coming up even right now to feed our spirits, to to pray, to worship, to take communion that's gonna be available in the back. Do not miss this chance. Don't miss it. If even as I'm saying this, something in you is just like, oh, I don't wanna do that. I know what's going on. You're just, you're in that place trying to do both. You're in church, but you don't even really want to be here. So begin feeding your spirit. Begin starving your flesh. Watch what the Lord does. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And and thank you for the help that it is to us. Thank you that it speaks to the issues that we face in, in our lives today in 2018. And issues that are still true and still pertinent to our lives. Father, I thank you for the clarity that your word brings. Lord, we know that our flesh wants to tell us that our situation is different from everyone else's. Nobody understands. Nobody's going through it. But Father, we recognize that 
you've been doing great things in people through difficult times since the beginning of the world. You did it in Abraham. You're doing it in Isaac in the text we're doing today. You did it through the early church. The greatest work ever done on this earth, done through your son Jesus, was through the most difficult work that's ever been done. And so Father, we just believe in faith that you are doing great things through those famine areas of our life, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with the faith, the gift of faith right now to move out of the place of compromise, to not go down to Egypt, but to seek you and to find our rest and our, our, our peace and all the things that we're chasing in you in a real, real way. Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now who feels like, yeah, but I need real help. We just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would be more real than you've ever been, Lord God. That you would be more real than anything else that's been tried. Anything else that's been used as a substitute. Would you be more real than that right now, God? Glorify your name in our lives. Make yourself greater in our lives, Lord. Give us more testimony to share of your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. And help us to remember this moment even right now so that we can look back in the future and marvel at what you did. As we simply put our faith and our trust in you, help us to do it, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.